You are listening to The Dan Patrick Show on Fox Sports Radio. Let's bring in Pat Forty, Sports Illustrated senior writer and a college football insider. Good morning, Pat. A lot to digest over the weekend. Where are you going to start? Let's start with Lincoln Riley. Got to start there. I mean, it's the biggest like college-to-college college coaching move I can remember. Uh, you know, usually people don't leave Oklahoma unless they're retiring, maybe going to the NFL, maybe a scandal chased them out. To go leave Oklahoma for another job uh, is remarkable. And I think it says a lot, Dan, about where Oklahoma is heading. And I'd say Lincoln Riley, while he may be running to the beach in L.A., he's also running away from the SEC, and I don't blame him. Yeah, I brought that up, and I don't know. I haven't heard, but I I just figured if you had a chance to play for a national championship or continue your run, you got a better chance at USC than I think you do taking Oklahoma into the SEC. Uh, is that fair to say, though? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say. Certainly, I, I we'll hear what he says at the, the press conference today, although I'd imagine, you know, it's going to be all about why USC is a wonderful place, which it is. But what's the one thing that has changed? It's where Oklahoma is going to make its uh, its conference affiliation. And he changed when that changed. So I, I look at it and say all the advantages that he had at Oklahoma in terms of being able to dominate a conference, recruit where you want and who you want, less competition, less you know, just bloodthirsty week in and week out battles. Uh, and you can still play for a national championship, especially if and when we get the expanded playoff, which should be soon. I'd go to USC as well. How blindsided was Oklahoma? I think they were pretty blindsided. Uh, you know, I I talked to somebody there last week who, who took great umbrage <laughs> uh, and I really, I was inquiring about LSU because that's where the smoke was, but uh, I it took great umbrage. So why do people always say that our coaches would leave? They said that about Bob Stoops and he didn't leave. Now they're saying about Lincoln, I don't think he's going to leave. There's no indication he's going to leave. Then all of a sudden he's going to leave. So uh, something at the very end of the week, whether it was Friday, whether it was Saturday, I think things started to uh, percolate and there became a little bit of uh, turbulence there, but I, I don't think Oklahoma saw this coming until very late in the game. All right. What's Oklahoma do? What's LSU do? Whew, those are great questions. Uh, it's interesting to me that Bob Stoops steps in as the interim, and he may just do like Barry Alvarez did and just say, look, I'm going to coach this bowl game uh, and enjoy it, and that's it. What if Bob Stoops says, you know what, I like this. I'd like to stay. I'd mm -hmm. like to be the head coach. I mean, I'm not sure that's out of the question. I know the release from Oklahoma yesterday did not say I am only coaching the bowl game, period. <laughs> uh, it just said he would be the interim coach for the bowl game. Uh, if not him, hey, his brother is doing a heck of a job at Kentucky and maybe realizing he's scraping the ceiling of what Kentucky could do. What better place to go than Oklahoma and have the backing of your legendary brother there who knows, knows everyone and everything about that program. The other option, I think Matt Campbell, who's at uh, Iowa State and has had five straight winning seasons there, which hadn't happened at that school since the 1920s. So I think that's where that list starts. LSU, I don't know, man. I mean, Mark Stoops could be in play there. I still have some people saying that they may take a last-ditch swing at Jimbo Fitcher. Uh, there's been some talk about NFL candidates, but the LSU situation has gotten really intriguing. All right, let's look at what you think the playoff rankings are going to look like tomorrow night, and then let's handicap as uh, we move into the uh, the following weekend. So how's it play out tomorrow night? I think uh, Georgia 1, Michigan 2, 
probably Cincinnati three, and then the real intrigue. I, I'm sorry, you probably have Alabama still in there. I, I would say that whether the three or four, the intrigue to me is who's going to be five and six, and in what order between Notre Dame and Oklahoma State, because I anticipate Alabama losing to Georgia and opening up that fourth spot. And then is it Notre Dame or is it Oklahoma State? And I do think it's interesting that in both of the human polls, uh, the the top 25s that Oklahoma State jumped ahead of Notre Dame in those. And so people may be kind of setting the stage there, especially since Notre Dame doesn't have another game for Oklahoma State to slide into that fourth spot if Alabama does lose. The fallout from uh, Michigan's win is what? It's huge, I think. I mean, just massive for Jim Harbaugh, his finest day, obviously, in that job, something they've been waiting for for six years. Uh, the, the, you know, and I think ever since that fourth and one spot for JT Barrett in 2016, his program stalled and then declined. And now this shoots it back up with a vengeance. And they're 60 minutes away against Iowa if they don't have a letdown from going to the playoff. And let's be frank, Michigan's been a great program for a long time, but they haven't been a national championship competitor in a long time. It's been quite a while, and now they've got a shot to do it. You finally get over on your nemesis. You get into the playoff. You take those defensive ends in that running game. Take your chances against anybody. How valuable, though, do you think that Alabama win over Auburn is in the eyes of the playoff committee? I don't think it's super valuable. You know, I mean, it's, it's it, it kept them from being eliminated, but that was a life-and-death struggle to beat a 6-16. Six and 16. Uh, So, I mean, I, I look at them – I I have not been that sold on Alabama all year. I, I would certainly have them no higher than fourth right now and possibly fifth or sixth uh, in my rankings. I just I think that they they are missing, obviously, a lot of incredible talent from last year's team. But I think a little bit of the just veteran leadership, too, that went with that, that's gotten them into some really uh, some some close, tough games against mediocre competition. What if Alabama beats Georgia? If Alabama beats Georgia, then I think the playoff's pretty easy. Then if, if the other games go according to plan, it's Georgia, it's Alabama, it's Michigan, it's Cincinnati. Uh, and then, I mean, you could have an argument, I suppose, for Oklahoma State versus Cincinnati. That would be where the tension would lie. We always got to have some tension, Dan, even if we got to make it up on the last day. But uh, I, if, if Alabama wins, then the SEC gets two in and uh, everybody starts complaining about that. I just got my Heisman paperwork. Who is the leading candidate? Do we have it? It's like the MVP in the NFL. I don't know if we have a leading candidate. And with the Heisman, you know, is is Bryce Young the Heisman winner, de facto Heisman winner? I don't know. He was bad for 58 and a half minutes, but he was great. You know, I mean, uh, honestly, I look at it this way is usually the best players on the best teams become the Heisman favorites as long as they're offensive players. This year, the best players on the whole top six are all defensive players. Georgia's best player is Jordan Davis. He's a nose tackle. Michigan's best player is Aiden Hutchinson. He's a defensive end. Alabama's best player is probably Will Anderson, the linebacker. Yeah. Cincinnati, Sauce Gardner probably there. Notre Dame, Kyle Hamilton, Oklahoma State, Malcolm Rodriguez, linebacker. I say let's just put a one, two, three defensive players on the Heisman ballot and burn the whole place down. I like it. I like it. I would love to be able to give, and I've been on this kick for a long, long time. I go back to when the Broncos beat the Packers in the Super Bowl. The The Broncos offensive line won that Super Bowl, but you can't make them MVPs. You have to give it to one person. Georgia's defensive unit. I mean, I, I, can we give them little Heismans? 
<laughs> I'd be in favor of that because that's the thing. I mean, like Jordan Davis is the best player, but his stats are minuscule because he's a nose guard. What he does is just gum up the line and everybody else <laughs> makes the tackles, you know? So, yeah, they – I mean, it's tough to quantify, but they, they deserve it. That is by far the best unit in America, either side of the ball, and really they're on, like, historic record-setting pace. What game are you going to next weekend? I will be in Atlanta for the Tide and the Bulldogs. Safe travels as always, Pat. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Be sure to catch the live edition of the Dan Patrick Show weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. Let me bring in Albert Breer, the uh, senior NFL reporter uh, for the Monday Morning Quarterback, Ohio State apologist. And uh, let's start there, Albert. How was that day watching Michigan and uh, the Ohio State? Yeah, it was tough. Um, it's been a while, you know, so I, I, I think 10 years, like, I mean, I, I say 10 years, but like, you know, as well as I do, like that one 10 years ago, wasn't it's like during the year that we didn't really have a full-time head coach. Luke Fickle was the interim. And um, so really it's like the first time I felt that way in 18 years, which is mind blowing. <laughs> so yeah, it was frustrating. And it was like, it felt like, it felt a little bit like losing to Purdue when we couldn't stop Rondale Moore yeah. or losing to Iowa when we couldn't stop the tight ends. It's like when another team has one thing you can't stop, then it's a really, really frustrating experience. And I felt that way with the Michigan pass rushers that, um, you know, they were pre- pretty much consistently able to get to CJ and and keep our passing game from really hitting the rhythm that it's been for the last been in for the last month. I know you cover the NFL, but obviously college football with uh, Mm -hmm. Lincoln Riley, what's happened with Oklahoma and how that we thought the Mel Tucker Michigan State contract was going to reverberate with salaries (laughs) around college in the NFL. Uh, I was told Lincoln Riley was offered $12 million a year by LSU. (laughs) How do you think this plays out with other coaches like, you know, Cliff Kingsbury is probably going to go, hey, do I have to (laughs) flirt with Oklahoma or LSU to get a pay raise here with the Arizona Cardinals? What do you think happens? Yeah, I, I think it's just sort of changes the dynamic. And and I think there are some people that would argue, Dan, that it's been a long time coming. I mean, if you think about like what players make, and if you want to really go down the list and look at the players who are making 10, 12, 14 million dollars a year, that's what the top coaches in the NFL make. Like, there's no argument. Those guys aren't as valuable as a great head coach. And it's not a knock on any of those guys. It's just having a great head coach is as valuable, I think, in pro football as it is in any sport, right? And so, like, I think that there maybe has been a market correction coming here because of the value of a great coach in that sport specifically. And, um, you know, I think it started to some degree with Matt Rule in that, like, he, I think, broke the bank for a guy with his first NFL coaching contract where you had guys in eight figures, and now there are about, I think there are nine NFL coaches that are on eight figures per year but you didn't have a first time guy coming in and getting 9 million a year the way Matt rule did. And you didn't have anybody doing seven year contracts, but Matt rule could command that because that's what Baylor was offering him to stay, you know? So, um, you know, I think that that's sort of going to be the way the leverage game works in coaching now where, you know, these big college programs, especially ones that are going to get desperate here, like your Oklahoma, like your LSU that are afraid of sort of the music stopping and them not having a guy. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of, you know, the successful pro coaches, all they have to do is just be vague with their answers for a week, right? Like, like somebody has them at a press conference, just be vague for a week. Like, I don't know if it's, 
you know, give them the old Kyle Shanahan like answer. I don't know if we're all going to be alive on Sunday, you know, and, and just make your, your place a little nervous and maybe you cash in. Well, Mike Tomlin wasn't trying to cash in when he wasn't no. vague when that story came. He basically gave a speech, which I had a USC fan who said, now we really want him even more with giving a speech like that. I said, he gave you a speech <laughs> that he doesn't want to go to USC. He goes, man, I love the fire there. I, what, what kind of openings? You know, it was a week ago, Matt Nagy was being fired reportedly. Okay, yeah. still got his job. I expect him to be let go at the end of the year. Vic Fangio is kind of winning his way into a, it feels like a tougher decision in Denver. I yeah. don't know if Joe Judge is, you know, these next four or five games are going to impact his future there. Don't know if you see any other mm-hmm. openings or potential yeah. openings. I mean, there's been so much turnover. You know, I, I feel like this is like an annual thing, Dan, where we get to this p- time of year. And unless there are the obvious ones and like last year was different. Cause last year we really had like three stays of execution, right? Like, Detroit, Atlanta, Jacksonville, those guys all survived after 2019, and they were on a very, very short leash going into 2020. And, you know, obviously all of those come open, but there's been so much turnover over the years that sometimes it's hard to pinpoint, you know, which ones are going to be open this early because you're firing guys who've only been in their places for a year or two, you know? Um, But I think the ones that most of the people in the industry are paying attention to um, you know, obviously, you know, Chicago is one and, you know, the fate of a young quarterback is sort of in the balance there. So that's a big one. Minnesota is another one where, you know, two years ago, that was sort of up in the air. And, you know, if they don't make the playoffs this year, it'd be the first time for Mike Zimmer missing two years in a row. So I think that that's one to keep an eye on as well. Um, you know, obviously some of them have, kind of gone the other way. Like Miami is a good example. Yeah. People were talking about it. Miami. Well, now, you know, Brian Flores and Chris Greer and the guys down there have won four in a row and they play the Jets and the Giants the next two weeks and two is playing well. So it looks like he's safe. You know, Joe Judge, what does it look like over the last half of the season? I can tell you this, like the Maras love Jason Garrett. So the fact that he, that they were willing to pull the plug on Jason Garrett in the middle of the season, you know, got everyone's attention in that building and it should, you know, I think everybody was put on notice by that. So you have a few that are sort of, I think, percolating right now. Um, you know, the other thing is, I think, you know, there's, there's to some degree, and I think this has happened in college too, where this has sort of forced these big swings, like USC taking a huge swing at Lincoln Riley. There aren't the obvious candidates that were last year. Like last year you had Robert Sala and Arthur Smith, who everyone interviewed. Do you have that obvious like young candidate coming up? I think this is going to be a year where maybe you see more of the retreads. You see guys like Josh McDaniels or Raheem Morris or Todd Bowles, um, you know, those sorts of guys getting second shots because there just isn't the pool of young candidates than there ha- that there has been in the past. We're talking Albert Breer, senior NFL reporter and lead content strategist for the Monday morning quarterback. I'm curious about this situation, how it plays out in Seattle. And I don't have any inside information on it, but I have a pretty good gut feeling with Russell mm-hmm. Wilson. If you're not going to make the playoffs, and the franchise has to decide, okay, what is our future? What direction are we pointed in? Um, do you want to keep Pete Carroll? Does Pete want to stay? He's going to be 70 years of age. Russ has two more years left. Um, could Russell Wilson pull a Matthew Stafford? Could he say, hey, let's, let's just, you guys get something for me, but let me move on. Could you see a scenario where Russ not forces his way out, but mm-hmm. maybe Stafford's his way out. 
Yeah, like he's less passive aggressive than he was about it last year. I think is what yeah. you're saying, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, my understanding is like so his mindset last year, um, having talked to some people around him, was he wanted to view last year as like the launch, you know, the last offseason as the launch of the second half of his career. And so it wasn't just I'm gonna assess my team, it's I'm gonna assess the way I train, I'm gonna assess how I work with my teammates in the offseason, I'm gonna assess all of this because he was, I think, consumed with the idea. Like, what's my legacy going to be? And am I going to be remembered like a Peyton Manning or a Tom Brady? And to do that, do I have to win championships? And so, I mean, I'm just here to tell you this, Dan. Like, if that was his mindset last year, and he's really worried about, like, what his legacy is going to look like, and he views this as the start of the second half of his career, and he wants to have what Tom Brady had, you know, at the end in New England and now in Tampa, or what Peyton Manning got in Denver after he got hurt and came back from the injury – does he think he can get that in Seattle? Because if he doesn't at the end of this year, and it's not looking great right now, and yeah. tonight might be another one of those national TV referendums on it, like I don't know where he'd be in more of a spot in January of 2022 than he was in January of 2021 to want to stay there. And so I think your scenario is an interesting one because the way Stafford did it was very – I would say it was very, it was just very conciliatory, you know, where it was, I'm going to go in and I don't want to ruffle feathers and I don't want to ruin my legacy in this city. And I still love this franchise. And I want you to be able to bring me back here and put me up in the ring of honor, but I want to move on and work with me. And so like, just knowing how image conscious Russ is, I don't think it's that hard to see a scenario, especially if they miss the playoffs, especially if there's questions about Pete's future, especially if the roster doesn't look better in eight weeks than it does now, like going forward where, you know, I could see Russell definitely like going in and having that conversation because I do think that there's a lot of people outside of Russell's camp working in that building that have thought for a while that he's on his last contract with Seattle to begin with. Yeah, I believe that. I don't think that he plays there next year, but I just wonder, and you're, you're so dead on with Russ and being image conscious. He's as image conscious as anybody. And you don't want to be that guy who says, I want to force my way out. You want to be the guy who says, look, you don't have, you know, first round draft picks, you know, I, I want to move on. I, I want to try to win another championship and you guys might not need to rebuild. But I want I just wonder how much longer Russ and Pete Carroll can coexist with their philosophies when it when it comes yeah. to offense. And and if and I agree with that. That, that, that's an important point, Dan, too, because I think sometimes we overlook this like these guys. And this isn't like I'm not like just saying Russell because I don't want to make him sound so Brady cares about this stuff, too. Those guys really care about their personal performance, right? And it's like, like you can't like ask a guy like this to shut down the competitive nature at like the team performance, and like it's okay, individual performance doesn't matter as much because it does. Like how they play matters to them almost as much as winning does. And that's another. I think you hit an important, important point there, which is like, does he feel like he's in the best position? to become a hall of famer, right? Like, does he feel like he's in the best position to really be remembered a certain way and play the sort of game that maybe he thinks he's capable of? He doesn't think that that's going to happen in Seattle because Pete runs the place a certain way and it's going to be run a certain way. As long as Pete's there, you know, that's certainly a part of it too. And I wonder if it's a big market like the giants, let's say they have two first round picks 
Is that something? And, and I, I don't mean to do sports radio where you call in with trade scenarios, but I'm just looking at this because I do think it's going to be real. I do think this is going to happen. Uh, but I don't know if Russ goes, my wife wants to be in a bigger market or yeah. I want to be in a bigger market. If you want to win, you're not going to go to the Giants. So where, you know, could you go to the Saints? You, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's a couple of teams that have that missing ingredient, which could be Russell Wilson. I mean, like I've heard platforms really important to him, you know, and and, and I th- I believe Dallas was on his list. Yeah. Which, I mean, <laughs> they've got Dak. You know what I mean? Like, and I heard Chicago. This is wild. I mean, I, but but there was there was like a rumor floating around last year that he liked the idea of Chicago because that's Obama's team, right? Like, and that like there was platform potentially post career there, and so like. I, I think he's very conscious of that stuff too. Mm-hmm. And obviously New York would be a stage, you know, like New York, like going and, and being the giants quarterback and maybe being the guy to help resurrect that team. And there are pieces there now they need to fix a bunch of stuff too, but there are pieces there like your Kenny Galladay's Kadarius Tony's um, Evan Ingram's when he's healthy, Saquon Barkley, where you could look at it and say, if you drop a veteran quarterback in there, maybe that veteran quarterback can ignite that team the way, again, like a Peyton Manning ignited that Broncos team with Demarius Thomas and Eric Decker 10 years ago. I, you know, if I was at that Ravens-Browns game, I would ask for my money back. That's one of the worst primetime games <laughs> I've, I've ever seen. But I, I don't I, think you'd be very successful. No, I would not be. Um, I, I don't know what to make of the Ravens. As much as I look at Lamar and I'm fascinated, mm-hmm. and it, but it feels like he's a one-off in the playoffs where you go, man, He's really hard to defend. Yeah. I don't know if they're closer to being a Super Bowl contender than they were last year. And we know Cleveland was on a lot of the short list of playing in the AFC title game here. Yeah. So they're both kind of interesting. The Ravens feel lucky. They they yeah. sort of they've survived here, which I guess that's what you want. But what do you are the Ravens a Super Bowl contender? I think these two teams are like a very different spots. I think for the Ravens, um, this is about injuries. And I, I give John Harbaugh all the credit in the world. I mean, I think he's done a dynamite job. And if they wind up with the one, number one or number two seed, I think he deserves coach of the year consideration. The amount of things that they've lost, like running backs are more important to them than most other teams because of the way they run their offense. They lost their top two running backs, J.K. Dobbins and Gus Edwards. They lost their left tackle, Ronnie Stanley. That's a sort of injury that can be crippling for teams. You know, they lose Marcus Peters, their number two corner. You know, you just you look at the injuries they've had across the board and then the kind of ticky tack stuff that's taking guys out. Right. Like where their receiver room was like basically a mash unit for two months. And, you know, Lamar goes down and he's out for a game. I just like it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you want to believe they're going to be able to keep this going, but so much of it feels like smoke and mirrors. And it's a great credit to everyone in that building that they've made it work. And so I think with the Ravens, it's more, can we continue to scotch tape the thing together on a week to week basis? Because we are really, really limping here. Whereas with the Browns, I think it's more, I would just say, I think some of the magic they had in that locker room last year where they were a gritty, tough, like, like there were so many things about that team last year that was sort of like, all right, like Kevin Stefanski has the culture turn there. I think with some of the moves they made in the offseason, they lost a little bit of that. Yeah. And so I think that they are maybe a little less resilient than they were last year. And obviously, since it's Cleveland, when things go even a little bit wrong because of the history of that franchise, the way that team's covered – 
like they have a way of getting magnified. Great to talk to you as always, Albert. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Dan. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. He's Mike Carmen. I'm Dan Byer. We have a brand new fantasy football podcast called I Want Your Flex. Twice a week, every Tuesday and Friday, we come up with new episodes to not only look back at what happened, what you need to do at that minute, and also look ahead of what's coming up in the fantasy football world. That's right, Dan. Every week, we're going to scour the waiver wire to find the pickups to turbo boost your fantasy lineup, sit, starts, fantasy football players' rankings to get you ready to dominate the competition. Listen to I Want Your Flex with Mike Harmon and me, Dan Beyer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Barry Trammell covers the Oklahoma Sooners, the great columnist for the Oklahoman, and he joins us now. If I told you a week ago Lincoln Riley was going to be the USC head coach, you would have said what? Said uh, it's possible, but doesn't seem likely, but it's possible. I was pretty sure he wasn't going to LSU, but turns out maybe that was a Trojan horse, all that SEC, you know, LSU or Florida or wherever. Um, going to going to Southern Cal makes uh, some sense when you think about it. Uh, if a coach doesn't want to jump into the into the den of vipers that the SEC can be, um, if he wants to replicate what he had at Oklahoma, USC is a pretty good place to do it. That's a place he should go and could quickly dominate the conference. Yeah, I understand that. Where Oklahoma in the Big Twelve, you're kind of separated, and you go to the Pac-12, you have that opportunity to stay separated. You go into the SEC, you know that this ain't the Big Twelve. How much do you think this is him running to USC or running away from the SEC? I think. Well, I mean, I think it's the same. Um, if you ask me if, if Oklahoma hadn't joined the SEC or, or made the uh, intent to go to the SEC, would Lincoln Riley still be the coach? I think the answer is yes. Really? Um, yeah. I, I don't think he wanted to to go to the SEC. Um, I think he'd been successful there, but the success level would have been different from what Oklahoma's accustomed to, dominating the conference. You know, they lost Bedlam Saturday night. That ended six straight years of winning the Big 12. So – um, that's that's sort of the standard he set. That's the standard he expects. You're not going to do that in the SEC. Alabama doesn't win six straight SEC titles, and they're Alabama. So uh, I think he can go to USC. You know, you, uh, the Pac-12 is sort of an open range. Yeah. Anybody that's ready to take over, it, it's it's there for the taking. And and somebody like Lincoln Riley could go to could go to LA and do just exactly that. So the wish list at Oklahoma starts with who? Well, I mean, I think uh, Oklahoma is sort of a unique place. They've at one time in their history, literally, have they hired a sitting head coach. That was Howard Schnellenberger in 1995. It was a disaster. He lasted one year. They've always hired an up-and-coming assistant coach. They believe in their program more than personality. Uh, Barry Switzer, Bob Stoops, uh, Chuck Fairbanks, Bud Wilkinson. I mean, all the big names had never been head coaches before they got to Oklahoma. So uh, that's not necessarily what they'll do now. The transfer per portal changes everything. Uh, in the past, when you change coaches, you had to worry about your future rosters and recruiting. Now you got to worry about your current roster, keeping people together. Uh, you need sort of a steady hand. That could mean 
that could mean uh, immediate uh, wisdom is needed, guys who can keep the ship going. Um, in terms of names being thrown around, Shane Beamer at South Carolina, he was on Lincoln's staff until a year ago. Mm. He's, he's a guy to look for because uh, very impressive. Uh, the Beamer family is as classy uh, and as well-respected as any in America, and that's not just Frank. Shane is the same way. OU loved him. If he was still on Lincoln's staff, I think he'd already have been named head coach. So he's one to keep an eye on. Uh, the Sooners will talk to Brent Venables also, 13-year assistant at Bob for Bob Stoops. Went to Clemson 10 years ago and has helped Dabo Swinney build an empire. Uh, he's only 50, been coaching uh, you know, 25 years in college football, but he's only 50 years old. He will be a, a viable candidate. And I think OU will look at some of the some of the hot coaches. The guy I think to keep an eye on is Matt Rule, uh, who did wonderful at Baylor. He's always wanted to coach in the NFL. He's now been there two years. Uh, I don't know if he likes it. I know that uh, if you go to the NFL and don't have a quarterback, uh, it's not that great of a job. So is Matt Rule ready to come back to college? I can say this. Uh, I've been covering college football for 40 years. Most impressive person I've come across as a coach slash personality in coaching is Matt Rule. So that's wow. who that's who I would call. So those are some of the names. Uh, that what about Bob out. Stoops? Uh, Bob Stoops, I don't think wants to get back in the call. Okay. But what a great what a what a great resource he is to step in and be able you know try to try to keep things steady here for the next week or month or ever how long he needs to be the interim coach. Uh, Bob got away because of the stress. He got away because of the demands. He got away because of the social media and the changing times. Uh, Bob Stoops is not into, uh, he's not into TikTok and NIL. That's not his <laughs> deal. So, you know, that, that's what you got to be if you're a head coach these days. Uh, what would you say to USC fans uh, listening to this in Los Angeles of what you're getting with Lincoln Riley? He's yeah, a fantastic coach. I mean, he's he does everything in a classy manner. Now, you know, OU fans don't like the way he left or that he left or whatever, but uh, he's, a, he's a great coach. Uh, he's not just an offensive savant. He's a great leader. He's a good, he's a good administrator. He's, he's the sharpest guy in whatever room he walks into. Um, I mean, it, it's a home run hire for USC. There's not any question about that. The only question I would have for USC is how long can you keep him? Does Lincoln eventually want to go to the NFL? If the answer is no, you're going to be, you're going to have a good coach for, uh, for quite a while. And I think, I think you Trojans will ascend to the top of the Pac-12 pretty quickly. Great to catch up with you as always. Barry, thank you for your time. You bet. Thanks. Be sure to catch the live edition of the Dan Patrick Show weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. I knew one guy was going to be happy today. He's our next guest. He's Carson Palmer, former NFL quarterback and, of course, a Heisman Trophy winner at uh, USC. His weekly appearance brought to you by... Our good partner, Level Select CBD, looking for next uh, level relief. Visit levelselectcbd.com. All right. So what would you think of the hire with uh, Lincoln Riley? Yeah, it's it's a good day to be a Trojan, Dan. I think that one kind of came out of left field. Nobody was expecting it. Nobody was really talking about it. His, his name wasn't thrown around the rumorville. And and now he's he's headed to L.A. to be the next coach at USC. And I think it's a fantastic win for the Trojans. Okay. I know that we, you know, we got you in a little bit of trouble when you brought up Mike Tomlin's name on the wish list. But was Lincoln Riley's name on that wish list? Like, and if so, how far back? 
Oh, he, he was, he would have been at the top of the list. I just don't think anybody really knew his current contract situation. He only has or had one year left on his deal in Oklahoma. You know, it seemed like a great fit, you know, for, for him to stay at Oklahoma for the long haul. Uh, he'd had a ton of success and, and come in. And I think in four or five years, been to the, been to the playoffs, three of the four years, three of the five years. So, um, you know, it just it just wasn't on his name was not on people people's radar. And uh, I think a majority of USC fans across the country, if they would have known Lincoln was in the running, he would have been at the top of everybody's list. OK, is there somebody that you thought was going to get it? Well, I think the obvious tie was the Luke Fickle tie with University of Cincinnati and, and Mike Bone, the current USC athletic director, having hired coach fickle to cincinnati when when mike was at cincinnati it just was a natural fit um but this one i mean at this timing you just didn't feel this timing um you didn't think there was going to be announcement coming over thanksgiving weekend but uh, like i said i mean just a huge win for all trojans but if you're a high school quarterback and let's say you're four or five star recruit um it feels like those quarterbacks have been leaving southern california is is lincoln riley enough for these you know, high school seniors to say, I'm going to stay here in, in Southern California. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, he's just look at the last two quarterbacks he had in, in Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield. Both of them went number one in the draft. Both of them won Heisman trophies. You know, they didn't have a ton of time to work under Lincoln and, and under his tutelage to really develop, but he developed them extremely quickly, which if you look at high school recruits right now, what's important is quick success. Nobody wants to go to go to university and wait two or three years and be the starter and, you know, wait for his turn. Guy, guys want to go into college and play now and they want to have success early. So if, if you're a young, uh, a young high school kid with those kind of aspirations and you just look at the track record of what Lincoln Riley's done in a short amount of time with Kyler Murray and a short amount of time with with Baker Mayfield, I mean, that that's proven success very, very quick, very fast. So I think that's um, you know, a great recruiting tool that Lincoln can go into these high school kids' living rooms and sit in front of their mom and dad and say, hey, look, the proof's in the pudding. I only had a year with Kyler. I had a very short amount of time with Baker, and I've, I've found a way to get the best and to put the best uh, talent out on the field around these players, and I think that's been a big factor in their success also. I think it's a great hire for USC. I think it's a smart move logistically for, for Lincoln Riley because – you can sort of have that Big 12 feel, but now you're in the Pac-12 because Oklahoma's going to the SEC. You can still stand alone a little bit like you did with Oklahoma in the Big 12, and you can do that in the Pac-12. What do you think? Oh, oh absolutely. It's much more difficult to get to the bull championship, uh, to get to the playoffs in the SEC. you got to worry about Georgia. you got to worry about Florida. you got Alabama and LSU and so on. In the Pac-12, you've really got Oregon if you're USC. And I know they just got beat a couple weeks ago by UCLA, but for the most part, you know, you've got a much easier route to get to the playoffs going at Gumman from the Pac-12. I mean, Oregon's consistently pretty, pretty good. I mean, you know, over the years, last 10, 15 years, Oregon's really the only challenger that SC's had with an outlier every once in a while with Stanford that's had a, a couple good years. Um, you know, Washington State, you know, has a couple good years every once in a while. But for the most part, it's a USC-Oregon conference. You go look at the, the SEC, everybody's a contender outside of a, a couple of schools. Yeah, I get it. And uh, 
you know, he did a lot of recruiting in uh, Southern California, too. And then you're going to get these kids who are going to decommit from Oklahoma and probably follow him to USC. You've already got a couple. I mean, you're already starting to hear rumblings. There's a couple of great players that at modern day, which is one of the, the powerhouses in Southern California and really one of the powerhouse high schools in the country. And they've got two five-star recruits, the running back and the quarterback. Both were committed to Oklahoma. I wouldn't be surprised to see those guys change their minds and, and stay home. I mean, that, that it's, it's tough to leave Southern California when you're a high school football player. And it's really tough to leave Southern California and go to Norman, Oklahoma. And, and then you factor in, you know, the family and friends that are close that can now come and see you and get in a car and drive and watch you play at SC compared to getting on a flight or three flights getting to Norman. Um, you know, he, he's going to start getting that kind of Pete Carroll respect from the recruiting classes where everybody out of California, SC's in their top five when Pete Carroll was there. And I think you're going to see that same thing with, with Lincoln Riley. You have not seen that in the, in the Clay Helton area. There's tons of kids that don't even take a trip to SC and they go to the SEC. They go to the Big 12. They've head, headed outside of California. They've gone to Oregon. Now I think you're going to see that Pete Carroll following of, of these high school kids in California, staying in state and giving SC a really hard look. What was the wildest thing that happened on a recruiting trip for you? Um, I had a great recruiting trip to the University of Colorado when, when Rick Neuheisel was there. Um, and Colorado wasn't a big powerhouse at the time. I just, I just had a great relation with coach Neuheisel and really, really liked him and, and wanted to be a part of what he had going at, at Colorado at the time. And our recruiting trip, we w- we went paintballing, we went river rafting. Um, we, we just did some outside the box things that you wouldn't expect to do on a recruiting trip. And that was part of, you know, that was what one of the things that made Rick Neuheisel such a great recruiter. He was a phenomenal recruiter is he found ways to exploit the places that he was, University of Washington, UCLA, Colorado. He used the um, he used all the things he had in his own backyard to attract kids. You just wanted a free trip to Colorado, didn't you? You weren't going there. No doubt. <laughs> no, I mean I, I I I hadn't been to Boulder. I'd heard good things and and at the time New Heisel had a, they were an up and coming program and um you know, being a Southern California kid, you wanted to get outside of SoCal and go see. I went to Notre Dame. I went um, to Colorado and SC and, and had a blast on all my recruiting trips. Okay. No names, but what were you offered? Anything interesting anywhere? No. I mean, I, that when I was coming up and, and then when I was in the league, I was always hearing stories about a number of SEC schools. Um, there, there's, you know, when, when you go to USC, you got to be so careful if if there are if there are extracurricular activities going on and you know kids are getting paid pre the the name image and likeness world there there's a in LA there's US, USC grads UCLA grads Oregon and Washington you go on down the list you go to Tuscaloosa Alabama there's not a whole bunch of <laughs> Auburn fans you go to Baton Rouge there's not a bunch of Georgia Bulldogs in that area and they protect their own so all the stories i heard were coming out of the SEC where they were really small college towns and they could really control who was seeing some so-and-so ride around in a new Mercedes or a new Cadillac Escalade. We're talking to uh, Carson Palmer, who got offered nothing to go to USC, right? A great education, man. Of course great education. Yes, I know. I paid for two of those educations. All right. Um, when you're playing and you want to play, but you know that you're not helping your team play, 
who's it on to take Baker out or, you know, Matthew Stafford looked like he was banged up yesterday. At some point, when does, who makes that decision that it's better for us if you're not out there trying to gut this out? It's a team decision. And, and when you're talking about the quarterback of a franchise, it's a decision between Baker, the team doctor, the head team trainer, the owner, the GM, and the head coach. You can't just put it on the player because the player is always going to say, I'm good, I'm fine. It's a, it's, it's a collective discussion where everybody puts, you know, puts their weight in, makes their, makes their decision, comes up with why, the reasons why, why not. But you can't put it on one individual. And right now it looks like Baker's hurt. And, and the good thing that the Cleveland Browns have in their back pocket is Case Keenum. Case Keenum is a flat player. I mean, it, it hasn't worked out great when he's a starter year after year after year. But when he can spell a banged up, you know, shoulder that Baker may have or rib or whatever the issues he has, you can still win a lot of games with, with him, especially with the talent they have. So, you know, the, the best thing that Baker has and the Cleveland Browns have right now is Case Keenum. And it looks like you know, it looks like Baker's banged up. And if, if that group of, of minds get together and decide that the best thing for the team is Case Keenum, then they need to make that decision. I didn't understand this logic, and you can certainly help uh, understand this. You got Aaron Rodgers playing on a toe that might need surgery. If you're the Rams, why aren't you going out of your way? Let's just put pressure on him. I know he can carve you up. He's looking for the blitz and all of those things. But I have to make him uncomfortable. And it just didn't feel like the Rams made Rodgers as uncomfortable as they should have. Yeah, you, you would like to have seen them come out in the first three or four drives and just put a ton of pressure on him and make him move, make him get in some uncomfortable situations and, and get off balance and throw off platform where he has to put a little more weight on that pinky toe and get him uncomfortable, like you said. But you know, they just kind of sat out and said, we're going to try to cover him. We're going to keep the ball in front of us. You, I, I personally would have liked them to see put a ton of pressure on him early. And if he gets you in the first two or three drives, you can then back off and sit and play zone and keep the ball in front of you and not let him throw it over your head. But it just was too easy. I mean, when you see these quarterbacks that are banged up and then, you know, Sunday night was a great example. Baltimore knew that, that he was hurting. They could tell Baker was hurting. They've read all the press clippings. They've seen it. And they came after him. I mean, they, they were bringing not cover zero full pressures, but they consistently brought pressure and got him out, outside the pocket, made him move, made him get off platform and throw some balls that, you know, a t you know typically a healthy Baker would make, but an injured Baker is not going to make. And you would like to have seen that um, with, with the Rams yesterday, but for whatever reason, they came back and they wanted to keep the ball in front of them and they got almost 40 points hung on them, unfortunately. Yeah, I just I wonder about that because he might be playing himself out of getting that long-term contract by wanting to play to help this team. Yeah, I mean that that tough guy mentality is something that that you want your quarterback to have. Every organization wants their franchise player to say I can play no matter what. But again, this group of doctors and professionals and GMs and head coach they need to get together and and make that decision as a team and what's best for the team, but from, from a contractual standpoint going forward, I mean, you can't sit here and say that Baker's earned a long-term contract that's going to pay him $40 million bucks a year. It's just flat out the play on the field has not shown that he's worth $30, $40, 50000000 bucks a year, which, which is where these contracts are heading currently. So they're in a tough spot. I mean, it's, it's tough not to re-sign and give a long-term extension to a guy that's number one pick, a guy that's kind of kept you somewhat in the playoff hunt every year he's been there. 
Um, but not getting in the playoffs and with the talent they have, they've got some huge decisions to make this offseason. As a former great quarterback, when I see Aaron Rodgers, and I'm talking about you being the former great quarterback, Aaron Rodgers just, it still feels like there's a backyard mentality to how he plays that position. That, you know, the guy in the backyard, the quarterback's always the best athlete, and, and it still feels that way. How does he, how's he able to do it where it feels like it's, it's when he's great, it's as effortless as anybody who plays in the game? It's as unorthodox as anybody I've ever seen play the position. I mean, you, you know, it's funny as, as the last 20 years have progressed the position of playing quarterback. And it started back in the day with the San Francisco 49ers and the, the Steve Young's and the Joe, Joe Montana's the progression, one hitch, two hitch, first, second, read third, read fourth, read, and you go through a progression. You read the curl and the flat to the hook, to the check down. He doesn't play the game that way. And very, very few guys, I mean, another guy that really doesn't play that game that way is, is Mahomes. You rarely see them take a five-step drop, one hitch, two hitch, three hitch throw. I mean, sometimes Aaron's in a back pedal. Sometimes he's in a, a traditional drop back. Sometimes he's doing some sort of pump fake at the line of scrimmage to pump the now and they, you know, pump a draw. He's, he, he's just absolutely like you're saying it. He's playing in the backyard and looking for somebody in the right mismatch situation, looking for somebody just to give him a sliver of room to fit a ball into. But as far as playing the game, the way that we're all taught, even these young kids coming up right now, they're taught it's a purely progression game. Aaron does not go through progressions. He looks for a mismatch, finds a way to manipulate the pocket, extend the play, and try to go for the big chunk play and not throw that check down when the defense is dictating that this ball needs to be thrown to the check down. He's just not willing to take that five-yard throw. He wants that 25-yard back shoulder throw that we see him do week in and week out. As you said a couple of weeks ago, you know, teaching young kids don't emulate Aaron Rodgers because you can't. And and probably the same with Mahomes. But but if you sat down with him, could he teach you something about what he does that you wouldn't be aware of right now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there's so much going on um, that we as as NFL fans can't see from from the NBC cut or the Fox cut. If we had the coach's cut, which is that that camera that's at the very top of the stadium that's showing all 22 players in the field at the same time. You can pick up some things that way, but who knows? I mean, it, that's why he's so difficult to coach, and you've seen kind of coaches that always seem to be somewhat on the hot seat and, you know, you know, from McCarthy and, and then out the issues with Fleur we were hearing about uh, early on this year and last season. He's got to be difficult to coach because – you know, you can call a play and number one is not open, but number two is wide open. And he over, he just moves right past number two. And every once in a while, he'll take a sack waiting for number three or number four, hoping number four comes open in his read. And that's got to drive coaches absolutely nuts, but absolutely hands down, he is worth the headache. Concerns about the Rams? I'm not. I mean, I, I know they've, they've had a couple tough weeks in a row. Um, but at the end of the day, Odell Beckham is still trying to figure it out. Matt Stafford is still trying to figure him out. We're going to see there's enough season left before the playoffs start that we're going to start to see those two guys mesh a little bit more. You saw Odell catch the sluggo, the slant go route for the touchdown. 
we're going to start seeing more of that. I mean, he's getting more and more comfortable with the formations. And that's one thing you got to realize about a Sean McVay offense is there is so much going on before the ball is snapped. There are so many shifts, motions, movements, checks that are happening that you just can't come in and pick those up no matter how smart you are in two or three weeks. Those are going to take a month, a month and a half. So, I mean, this team is just loaded with talent. They have some of the best defensive players in all of football. They have some of the best offensive players in all of football. And when you have that combined with that coach, uh, it, it's a good recipe. I, I look to see them getting in the playoffs and really picking up some steam. You gave us piss missile last week. You promised uh, another one this week. So uh, what are you offering up with football jargon? Dan, I'm, I'm not an off-the-cuff kind of guy it's it's uh it's got to come naturally it's you gotta told be more me organic. you, you said i said give me more and you go wait till next week you didn't you prepare gotta, you did not prepare film study i woke up at two i woke up at two this morning preparing for the dp <laughs> show so i've been preparing all morning but it's it's got to naturally and organically oh, come off the top you God. can't just ask for a list of them okay maybe next week it, that, that's the cliffhanger Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, congratulations on your Trojans. You're back. We're back, baby.